Mother's Day is around the corner and I have the best gift idea for you. Hold on to your hats. It's mylifeinabook.com. Every week, My Life in a Book will send your mom a question via email. They will compile all of your mom or the mom in your life's answers and create a legacy keepsake book. The book becomes something you and future generations can treasure forever. I gave both my mother and my mother-in-law my life in a book, and they've already started responding to the prompts. When my mother-in-law received her first prompt, she said, oh my goodness, what a thoughtful gift. And that's what we all want, right? We all want to give thoughtful gifts. So check out mylifeinabook.com and use code SUSTAINABLE at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day, mylifeinabook.com, and use code SUSTAINABLE for 10% off today. If you've been paying attention, you've likely heard something about gut health and why zoning in on your gut health is so darn important. You need EQ's Daily Women's Microbiome Defense. It's a three-in-one capsule that supports your digestive health and promotes gut barrier protection. I started taking EQ's Daily Women's Microbiome Defense because I have a bloating problem, friends. Yes, I do. Inflammation is not my friend. Since taking one capsule a day on an empty stomach with water, I have noticed more energy, improved skin, and here's the big one, reduced bloating. Head to myeq.com and use code SUSTAINABLE for 15% off Equilibria's microbiome defense and so much more. That's myeq.com and use code SUSTAINABLE at checkout for 15% off site-wide today. I'm Stephanie Safarian, and this is episode 107. You are listening to the Sustainable Minimalist Podcast, a show about living simply and sustainably with your family. Here's your host, Stephanie Safarian. Hello there and welcome back. Have you ever watched an episode or two or three of the show Hoarders? It's popular and addicting and it has brought hoarding to life in a big way. But because the show only highlights the most extreme cases, it inadvertently promotes misconceptions about what hoarding actually is in real life. We think, oh, I don't live like that, so I must not be a hoarder, right? Well, that's not necessarily the case. And on today's show, you'll even hear that I, a self-described minimalist, display one of the five hoarding red flags. Today, I am speaking with Elaine Birchall. Elaine is a social worker with decades of experience working with hoarding clients, and she argues that hoarding behavior falls on a spectrum. My goals today are to shed light on what hoarding looks like in real life, not just on television, and to offer concrete support and strategies for listeners who either display risk factors themselves or want to help loved ones with unhealthy attachments to stuff. Enjoy the interview. Elaine, thank you so much for joining me on the Sustainable Minimalist Podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, and thank you for thinking of us. Today, we are going to talk about 
what is probably the opposite of minimalism, which is hoarding. And we're going to specifically talk about your book, which covers the topic in much greater detail than you and I could ever cover in a 30-minute episode. But before we even go into the meaty stuff, introduce yourself. Tell us who you are and what you do. So my name is Elaine Birchall. I'm a social worker with a master's degree. I've got a lot of years of experience, but the last 18 of those years, I have specialized in nothing but being a hoarding behavior and intervention specialist. And so I work on site wherever the hoarding occurs. I work right in the midst of it with people who find themselves overwhelmed. And I help them to understand what their underlying, uh, I call them triggers and feeders are, what's feeding it. And um, also to help them through various counseling techniques to actually deal physically with the stuff while we're counseling. And so that's quite unique in it. And I also take everything away that they're willing to give and we find a better home for it. So that also helps. I am under the impression that hoarding is a new mental diagnosis. Is that correct? It became a discrete disorder in its own right, May 2013, but it was always a disorder. It just wasn't recognized. It was called a lot of other things. We didn't have the language to identify what we were seeing. It We were calling it something else. So it didn't get recognized for the prevalence rate, which is a very conservatively, Stephanie, 6%. We can prove, but it's a lot higher than that. And it's a continuum. Yeah, it's a continuum. Wow, 6% of the population? So about 20 million people in the United States, I believe. That's, yeah, and you mentioned it's a, a continuum or on a spectrum. So some people, I would assume, may exhibit signs of hoarding behavior, but not necessarily meet the DSM's criteria. Would that be accurate? That's right, because it has a lifespan. It has about three or four different types of lifespan. So you can walk into a situation and consider it, okay, um, just a bad day. But what you only know retrospectively is, was that the beginning of the initial phase of what would become a hoarding situation? And the reason I say that is that not every person who lives with clutter or even periodically has clutter is going to go on to hoard, all right? But every single person, every single person over the last 18 years that I've worked with said they started out with clutter. So what we don't know is repeated clutter or chronic clutter, is it a stage in the future life cycle of what will become a hoarded environment? if the person doesn't get the help they need. Hmm. So what is the difference then between a cluttered household versus a hoarding household? Basically, uh, there is less material, there's less accumulation, and the person who has the clutter is more able to deal with it, and it doesn't interfere with their daily functioning as much. They have a different relationship at the point it's clutter only. Their relationship 
to those things is quite different than the relationship a person who proceeds down that continuum develops with their things. Many of my listeners consider themselves minimalists. So I'm not necessarily asking this question because I think I have listeners with hoarding tendencies, but I am asking it because I think that perhaps a lot of listeners listening have friends or family members, really key family members, who display hoarding tendencies and they want to help these family members. So I know in your book, you list five red flags for hoarding. What are they? So five red flags, we boil it down. There's a lot of backstory to these things, but I guess the first red flag would be, are there areas in your home that can't be used for their intended purpose? You're still performing that task, but you're not able to do it in the area that is intended for that task, number one. Second, how easy is it for you to find things when you want them? Is that a chaotic scramble for you? too often. That's very anxiety producing. So that has a a lifespan. Does clutter make it difficult to walk through any of the rooms in your home? Loss of, of flat surfaces, including floor spaces. That's the first step to piles and pathways. And the fifth is to what extent are those flat surfaces and tabletops cluttered? And when you see things that you want, do you feel compelled, and compelled is the important word there, to have them? Any one of those, you don't have to have all five, any one of those is a risk and should be a warning sign. Okay, wow. Um, (laughs) uh, Maybe I'm a hoarder because currently my garage, which is traditionally used to house a car, is so packed with stuff that I've been parking in the driveway. So I I have red flag number one right there. Uh, <laughs> but I guess what is surprising about your response is that, you know, the show hoarders, right? It almost glamorized hoarding or glamorized isn't the right word. It showed an extreme of hoarding behavior. It showed the extreme on the spectrum, right? But what I hear you saying is that hoarding can be incremental and it could be a lot more implicit even than what we see and assume is hoarding on the show hoarders. Yes. So I actually turned down uh, one of the shows because the show is about not to criticize. It has given us the language to identify, right? But the other thing it's done too is it's it has shaded people's ability to self-reflect because they're not as bad as that. So clearly they're not hoarding. Yes, they are if they meet the three criteria. So just back to the show. Um, What that does, though, that's about good television, right? And they always want the worst of the worst situations. And by and large, with very, very few exceptions, Stephanie, you would never do an intervention or a treatment, you know, cleaning up a, a blitz is what my clients call it. You'd never do it that way. And you certainly would never allow 
the helpers to have the latitude that they have. And the communication is very often fractious and demeaning. Um, you wouldn't allow that in, even if family, even if the person hoarding wanted some of their family to help, there would be what I call rules of engagement for everybody so that when we come out of this experience, it remains a productive, positive enhancement to their relationship. We took a little detour there, and I'm going to bring us back because you really aptly identified the five red flags of hoarding. But I want to go back even further and ask, are there any risk factors that make a person more susceptible to having hoarding behaviors? Yes, Stephanie, there are. When you look at all of the research and all of the people that I have worked with over the years and all the training I've done, I break it down into what I call paths. So basically three paths. The first is genetics. Anywhere from 50 to 84% of individuals who hoard have a first degree family relative who hoards. So that's a mother, father, sister, brother. We also know that there are certain chromosomes. We know that there are three with markers in common. We don't know enough about that, though, Stephanie, for it to be predictive so that we can say you can have a blood test, for instance, and find out. And yeah, you're at a high risk of warning. But it's an interesting correlation. The second path is having a high risk, what we call comorbid factor. And that's just a five dollar word, frankly, for other mental health or physical health challenge. But there's a long list. If you consider how many people in the Western world are living with anxiety and depression alone, anxiety and depression is a high, is a high risk comorbid factor for hoarding setting in ADD, ADHD, and there's a list of others um, on my website. The third path is one that is particularly scary because I believe that most people are are vulnerable to it. They're not safe. And that is even mildly, chronically being either disorganized, a little disorganized, and or overwhelmed, and then becoming vulnerable. So something happens in the person's life that destabilizes them. Either one major event that brings them to their knees and makes them so over profoundly overwhelmed, or a series of smaller events, less serious events, but they happen in a compressed period of time and the person can't restabilize in between. So by roughly the third one, they're on their knees and they're they're not functioning all that well. So I, what I hear you saying is there are three different sets of risk factors, genetics, environment, and then some sort of event. I'm wondering, though, how does procrastinating in that you don't put stuff away right away or you don't declutter, you know, every Thursday morning, like <laughs> like some people suggest you do. Tell me about how not having a regular routine is related to hoarding. The key thing to understand about hoarding, and that's the state of mind of a person who ends up creating a hoarded environment is their profound state of being overwhelmed. And what overwhelm does, it also causes procrastination, but it is just 
sort of classic um, for hoarding situations. What it does, though, is something chemical in your brain. It shuts down or interferes with the executive function part of the brain. You can't make a plan. You can't follow a plan step strategically. You can't even think strategically when your brain is, your, your executive function part of the brain is shut down or is not functioning well enough to kind of be, you know, on your side, on team you. Um, and the other thing about procrastination, though, Stephanie, is that it, it's got a bad name, but it's misguided because procrastination actually isn't the failure to finish or avoidance, voluntary avoidance um, at doing, performing other tasks. It's And it certainly isn't laziness. It actually is often an unconscious choice not to move forward with something because the completion of that project comes with a much bigger fear of negative consequences. So it it's actually a choice, sometimes unconscious, but sometimes not, to avoid a bigger thing that would hurt more. And for people who are really interested in procrastination, I'm going to pitch somebody's book, Dr. Jane Burka and Dr. Lenora Ewan. And they have a book that is my Bible on procrastination. It's why you do it and what you can do about it now. That's Burka and, and Ewan. Um, it's anything you want to know about procrastination. This is a best source um, to find out about it. Thank you for that resource. I'll absolutely add it to this week's show notes, which can be found at mamaminimalist.com forward slash 107. But I have to ask you, in your decades of experience working with hoarding clients, what do you see as the most commonly hoarded possessions? Paper, for one thing. Paper is, but we, but that is totally understandable. If you consider how much unsolicited paper comes into our environment every single day, uh, it, it is overwhelming. And people need strategies to deal with it because it just feels like a tsunami when you're already overwhelmed in a hoarding situation, or even if you're not, it's one of the best ways to get overwhelmed is paper, especially newspapers. People sometimes hold on to newspapers thinking that they don't read it all. They don't have to commit all the information to memory. But if they have the source, somehow it's like having um, a direct line to the information, which of course isn't true because you can't use something you can't find. Magazines are another one. Magazines are like a promise of a lifestyle you wish you had or something you wish you had in your life. And it's all wonderful colors and wonderful pictures. And people hold on to those, um, I, I guess, to motivate themselves. Flyers are another one. Electronic data has become the new age equivalent of paper. Other things are tools. Um, plastic bags, clothing, clothing is a big one, excessive recycling materials that don't actually get recycled, 
because the person gets overwhelmed or maybe the the schedule of pickup is not frequent enough in your area and it's a major task to drag this stuff out to the the curb. Um, Biodegradables can also be a problem. Laundry is another thing that people avoid and it builds up as though they're, they're storing it. And for sentimental saving, furniture um, and household or work-related items that seem too good to get rid of, despite the fact that the person has no foreseeable need. And so they hold on to them rather than share them, uh, donate them, just in case somebody they know or they are going to need them in future. The other thing is animals. Animal hoarding is one whole separate type Hmm. of hoarding. I'd like to shift gears and talk about helping hoarders. And I will say that this conversation has really reminded me that there's a spectrum of hoarding behavior. So listeners may not be hoarders, or they might not have family members who are hoarders, but certainly every single person listening probably knows someone that is displaying minor hoarding behaviors. What first steps do you suggest for listeners to either help themselves or help their loved ones? The first thing I would recommend is that I'm not pitching my website, but go to hoarding.ca. I did a special video. It's free as a community service. And it talks about, are you worried about someone's acquiring behavior? And it coaches you specifically on how to raise the topic, the kinds of things to say and not say, how to remain respectful and stay on your side of the boundary and limit line, and how to give that other person the message that you probably are trying to give them, which is you're there for them and you would like to help them rather than you just like to help them get rid of their stuff and they lose control. Um, So that would be the first step. The other thing um, about um, helping an individual is you, you need to know that you're the right person to do it. Because if you're a really task-oriented individual, you're probably not going to change. And you need to be more process-oriented. All right. Um, So if you're not able to make that transition, helping find someone who is would be the first step. And so when you're talking, say you walk in to somebody's home that you haven't been in in a while and you know them well enough to talk to them, don't immediately focus on the on the accumulation. If the house is in that kind of condition, it's in that kind of condition for a good reason. Instead, focus, remain as neutral as you can, really be your best poker face, and focus on the person and how they're feeling, what events have led up to this point, and is there any one, even a small thing, that you could do to help them overcome an immediate current problem they're having? That's worth gold. The other thing is to understand this is not about throwing things out and getting rid of things and cleaning up. That will happen organically if you go about this the right way. 
It's about helping them change their relationship to their things so that they can get out of this headspace, this fog, this freeze they're in, being so overwhelmed to identify, to even realize the things that are the most important to them and help them find those things and set them aside and then compare. The person can compare their relationship and the importance of these things that are so like just jewels to them. They can't imagine life without them compared to some other things that then they've got an actual firsthand experience of, no, compared to this, this isn't as important. And so if we need to clear a little space so you can live more more safely, could this be? Always be asking questions, not telling them the answer. Also, keep the discussion broad. All right. Be curious about the person. Nothing happens without rapport. Uh, Don't blame or let them blame themselves. And don't let them use disparaging words about labels or words about themselves. And don't stay quiet if they do, because quiet silence is assent. You're agreeing with what they're saying if you don't offer them some kind, just some kindness. Mm. There are so many great tips there, Elaine. Thank you so much. But I just want to, before we close, ask, what is the line of this needs professional intervention versus this might be able to be managed with a close friend or family member's help? The relationship you have with the person. And if they have multiple vulnerabilities. So clearly they've got hoarding disorder if this situation meets those three criteria, whether nobody has to call them a hoarder or agree to that label. There's nothing magic about the word hoarder or hoarding. Um, But if it meets those three criteria that um, there must be what most people would describe as an excessive accumulation. Second, some or all of the living spaces can't be used for their intended purpose. And three, somebody is distressed. Or if they had the knowledge about the truth of the condition of the property, they would have a legitimate right to be concerned. And that can be your neighbor, your mortgage company, your landlord, your home insurance company the fire department, children's services, the Humane Society. And so if there's anything you can do, it would be to sit down and really get an accurate take on what is this person dealing with. If you know that they are living with depression and anxiety, or they have ADD or ADHD, or they have schizophrenia, or they have dementia, or you suspect they may have early onset dementia, um, then it's getting a little more complicated when there is an easily identifiable other factor. Hmm. What I hear you saying is there is a line, and most people know when the line is crossed between just needing to declutter and needing some serious intervention to address hoarding and its potential underlying issues. That's accurate. And even if you can't put words to it, it's in your gut. You know it. You're having a reaction. Either you yourself in the environment you own 
or you, a loved one, or a professional. We wrote this book for three three groups, Stephanie. One was the person who's sitting there wondering, am I? They could go to hoarding.ca and take the quiz, and it's going to tell you where you are on that continuum and what your risk level is. The other is people who kind of know that they've got a hoarding problem, um, but they want to try it on their own. Or there are no services in their area, or even if there were services, they couldn't afford them. The loved ones who are in as much stress and concern, genuine concern for their family member, and also for professionals who kind of trip over the fact a client um, discloses that they're living in a hoarding situation and they don't know much about hoarding, but they want to have some starting point other than the Diagnostic Manual of Mental Health Disorders, which really isn't going to help them when the rubber hits the road. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the book because it really is so comprehensive and in it's information on all facets of the disorder. So tell us what your book is called and where it can be found. So Suzanne Cronkright, I have a co-author. She's a technical writer. God bless her. She kept us on track. Um, Conquer the Clutter, Strategies to Identify, Manage, and Overcome Hoarding. It's available through hoarding.ca, which is my website. There's a link there that takes you straight through to the Johns Hopkins University Press, our publisher site, and you can buy it through them. You can also buy it through amazon.com, amazon.ca. I understand it's also available on amazon.co.uk and .au. And it should be available in many of your local bookstores, especially their online sites. It's available in hardcover, paperback, ebook, and uh, we're even in talks about an audiobook. Elaine, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. You've given us so much insight into a topic that this show has never covered before. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the invitation. You have no idea how many people's lives you're going to change uh, and help Stephanie that will hear your program and then think, oh my gosh, that's this person and be able to offer some help. I so hope you enjoyed that interview with Elaine Birchall. I have linked to her book, Conquer the Clutter, in this week's show notes, which you can find at mamaminimalist.com forward slash 107. That's M-A-M-A minimalist.com forward slash 107. Now, usually at this point in the episode, I like to tell you what's coming up next week. I'm not quite sure yet. It will be a surprise. It has just been one of those weeks, my friends. So I will see you next week. Take care. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. Click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.